Hi, everyone, and thank you for joining us. I want to let you know as you file in that you are in the right place. This is the Safety and Health Magazine webcast sponsored by JJ Keller. Just want to allow a little more time for folks to file in. We'll be getting going in about a minute from now. And again, thank you for joining us. Hello again, just alerting everyone you are in the right place. This is the Safety and Health Magazine webcast sponsored by JJ Keller. Just going to allow just a bit more time for folks to file in. We'll be getting the presentation going in about 30 seconds. Hello everyone and welcome to today's Safety and Health Magazine webcast, Forklift Compliance, Inspection Requirements, Training, and FAQs, sponsored by JJ Keller. My name is Kevin Drewley. I'm an Associate Editor with Safety and Health Magazine and will be moderating today's session. Thanks for joining us. We hope you all are safe and well. In a few minutes, we'll start our presentation, but first let's review some preliminary items. The views of today's speakers and organizations are their own and may not necessarily reflect those of the National Safety Council or Safety and Health Magazine. Any mention of a commercial enterprise, product, or publication does not necessarily mean the council or magazine endorses those items. At the end of today's webcast, we'll conduct a question and answer session. To ask a question, simply click the Q&A button at the bottom of your screen, type your question, and click the Send button. Feel free to ask your question at any time during the presentation. You don't have to wait for the question and answer session to begin. We'll try to answer as many questions as possible, but because of the large number of participants today, we might not get to every question. Any unanswered questions will be forwarded along to today's speakers. At the end of the webcast, you'll be asked to complete a brief evaluation survey. We'll let you know more about that after the presentation. This webcast will be archived, so you can access it after today's live event. To view this webcast and all of our past webcasts, please visit safetyandhealthmagazine.com slash events. With that, let's go ahead and get started. Our speakers today are Mark Stromey and Cindy Pauley. Mark is a senior EHS editor at J.J. Keller who joined the organization in 1994. He supports the subjects of workplace violence, electrical safety, fall protection, forklift compliance, walking working surfaces, and aerial and scissor lifts. Cindy is an associate editor EHS at J.J. Keller. She brings 13 years of safety program development and management experience in multiple industries, including oil and gas, chemical, manufacturing, construction, and agricultural. Cindy develops a variety of easily understandable content and also provides regulatory insight for JJ Keller's customers and partners. Again, we thank you all for tuning into this presentation. Mark, whenever you're ready, go ahead and take it away. Very good. And uh, thank you for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Today's webcast is sponsored by JJ Keller Training. JJ Keller Training Solutions cover a broad range of topics and are available in a variety of formats, training on demand, DVD, streaming video, video books. These all help you meet your training needs backed by regulatory experts and using the latest techniques and technology, our training solutions give your employees the proper instruction they need. On behalf of our sponsor, thanks for joining us today. All right, so forklift safety. It's interesting to know that uh, recently there's been a focus on this, um, starting with the annual observance of National Forklift Safety Day. And then there's that revised ANSI lift truck standard that came out a while back. And then there's a regulatory agenda item to revise the forklift standard. Now this increased focus is with good reason because power industrial trucks or PITs, they're in heavy use throughout industry. And of course, they're uh, a source of severe injury to workers. The data, um, unfortunately, is indicating we're going in the wrong direction with forklift safety. Back in uh, 2021, OSHA acting head Jim Frederick at the National Safety Forklift Day said serious injuries and fatalities involving forklifts have increased from 2011. In fact, fatalities increased nearly 20% and non-fatal injuries related to forklift use, they were up 32%. So what we wanna to do today is provide a foundation for getting back to basics with 
forklift safety and help you understand some of the gray areas that, you know, there are quite a few gray areas with this standard uh, and we're gonna cover some of those. All right, let's see. All right, so this is what we're gonna talk about today. Um, you know, they are, forklifts are prevalent in almost every facility or a lot of facilities. And, you know, they're very powerful. And with this power comes a potential for pretty serious hazards and injuries. Now, this standard is at 1910.178. Uh, talks about safety requirements that uh, should address many of these hazards. You know, though, the regulation is vague in some cases and in some cases actually silent on particular issues. So what Cindy and I want to do today, we want to provide uh, an overview of OSHA's forklift requirements. We want to answer some frequently asked questions. You can see what we're going to cover. We don't need to uh, read that. Um, we're just going to jump right into it. All right, so let's start out with the most logical point to this whole webcast is what equipment is co covered by 178. And you can see some of the questions that we get uh, are pallet jacks covered, scissors lifts. What about golf carts, golf cars? Are they covered? So the standard has got an extremely broad scope uh, and that's found in 178A1. It of course covers traditional sit down forklift riders. It applies to stand up forklifts, order pickers, even to powered pallet jacks, which is, is really interesting. Manual, no, powered, yes. They're under the standard and they all require specific things like training, evaluation, inspection, and so on. Now, you can see on the slide there that ANSI B56.1 standard, way back from 1969, if you can even find that thing in print, you're lucky. OSHA adopted it when it issues its powered industrial truck standard. The thing with this is it had more of a task-oriented definition refer referring to moving materials. So they did change up a couple things there. Moving on here, you can see some more examples of equipment that's covered. This, what I like about this is you're not going to find this, but we found it in the preamble to the final rule. And again, based on the ANSI standard, which OSHA again adopted, this list uh, in conjunction with the scope on that previous slide, hopefully will shed some light on what equipment is covered. And we get a lot of questions about, hey, so is this equipment covered? They send us an image and we go, no, uh, or yes. So really though, the whole, if you boil this down, uh, the general rule of thumb is if it's powered and designed to move materials other than dirt, then it's covered by the standard. The major, and we just mentioned dirt, so the major exception from the standard involves earth moving equipment like oh, front end loaders or backhoe loaders. It, these don't fall under the standard. They're exempt in the scope. Uh, what, what is interesting is even if this equipment has been modified to accept forks, and I've been on construction job sites where I've seen that uh, amazingly, equipment that was originally designed to move earth, it's not covered under the standard. And we've been told by OSHA that golf carts, golf cars, whatever, they're not covered under the standard. And there are letters of interpretation that say scissors lifts are not covered. Why? Well, because these are generally people movers, not material movers. Similarly, equipment like hand carts that are not powered, as I mentioned, they're not under the standard. Depending on equipment and industry, uh, the equipment may or may not be covered under some specific standard. For example, the construction industry 1926 standard talks about material handling uh, equipment. Otherwise, uh, as always, the famous general duty clause would apply where OSHA often references industry standards and the manufacturing uh, operator instructions. All right, so moving on, training, uh, 
that's that's really important. And we get a lot of questions about the training requirements. Uh, people are, it, it is confusing, I will admit it. So we're gonna cover what you see on the screen there. And I'm gonna turn it over to Cindy to get us started on these training requirements. She's gonna cover some of the most common questions that we get. Thanks, Mark. Welcome, everybody, and thanks to Mark for that information so far, and thanks for Safety and Health for having us here and joining us today. So we are glad that you've taken time out today to attend this webcast, so um, hopefully we will be able to answer some of your questions like Mark said. I did want to point out, um, since Mark was talking about vehicles um, that were exceptions or what was covered under the standard, I just wanted to share from my experience in oil and gas as well as in agriculture, one that isn't covered under the standard either, and that's the ATV or the four-wheeler. OSHA does, however, provide guidance for safe operations of these, and they would fall under general duty clause, which Mark also mentioned. So just wanted to throw that out there as a popular question. Um, so let's chat about trainer qualifications. One question that we get quite frequently involves the qualification for forklift trainers. OSHA states all operator training and evaluation shall be conducted by persons who have the knowledge, training, and experience to train operators and evaluate their competence. So that experience thing really uh, should be highlighted there. The standard doesn't really go into more detail other than that. It's really up to the employer to ensure that trainers meet the general qualifications that we mentioned, but OSHA has no requirements for trainers to take certain classes, hold any sort of certification or be recertified as trainers at special intervals or anything like that. So just something to keep in mind. Um, OSHA does provide some guidance on the issue though. The agency's compliance directive says, and forgive me for a quote here, but an example of a qualified trainer would be a person who by possession of recognized degree, certificate or professional standing, or who by knowledge, training and experience has demonstrated the ability to train and evaluate powered industrial truck operators. So you've probably heard that somewhere before, you know, that's typically what um, competent person um, would be discussed in other regulations as well. But um, just to give that definition for you again, the directive also says it's okay to bring in trainers from outside the company, such as a um, truck manufacturer's rep, for example, which we've utilized in the manufacturing in my experiences before, or the trainer can even be an employee if you feel they meet those qualifications. So the trainer doesn't have to operate a forklift as part of their daily job, which some people are, have questioned before as well, but they do have to have driving experience of the, of the equipment. So not part of their regular job, but they've done it before. An OSHA letter of interpretation back from July of uh, 2003 kind of sheds a little bit more light on what the agency means by experience. So in general, the trainer will only have, um, they'll have sufficient experience if they have the practical skills and judgment to be able to themselves operate the equipment. For example, if, a, if an employer uses a certain truck attachment and the trainer has never operated a truck with that particular attachment, the trainer would not have the proper experience necessary to be able to train and evaluate other people. So on the safe, on the safe use of attachments and stuff, you really want to make sure that they've actually used those attachments, especially if it's something that's new to, to the um, workplace. However, the standard does not require that the trainers operate the forklift regularly, for example, outside of their operator training duties as part of their job function or responsibility. So a little bit there on trainer qualifications. Now that we have our trainer in line, let's take a little bit of look at the training program itself. Uh, first, the training must be understandable to the workers that are being trained. In general, if you give work instructions and other information in a language that's other than English or by using certain vocabulary le level, for example, or if you're giving training verbally when workers are have a little difficulty reading, OSHA expects the training to be conducted the same way. So given the same information, same examples, that type thing. Under a recently issued policy statement, OSHA compliance officers actually have been instructed to verify that training was provided in a language, vocabulary, and format that workers can understand. So this goes for any type of training too, not just forklift training. So all operators must be trained before they can be allowed to operate forklifts. But what makes, what makes up the training program itself? Operators must receive a combination of 
formal instruction, practical training, and a performance evaluation. We'll go over a little bit of each of those here in a bit. This is very thorough approach to training, which is ideal for what OSHA is looking for. And when drivers complete the training program, you can definitely be confident that they're able to drive safely at your facilities. So let's talk a little bit about what OSHA means by formal instruction. In general, this is a classroom training session which uses lecture, discussion, videos, written materials, case studies, and so forth, anything that's, you know, typically like your college setting or high school setting. Um, interactive computer-based training programs are also used to meet this part of the program. So for the formal instruction, that is absolutely fine to use. The classroom should be a quiet, comfortable setting that allows trainees to concentrate on learning new material and not be distracted by things that are going on around the facility or things that they might have to be doing later on. So just make it to where they can have a non-distracted environment. Use this part of the program to introduce the hazards of, the operating, of operating the forklift, OSHA requirements for forklift operation, how the forklifts are used in your workplace, the rules of the road, and how to find and use information on the truck's operating instructions. The best classroom training, remember, involves employees in discussion and exercises, such as maybe having case studies. These kind of get them to think about how they'll operate the fork truck in a certain scenario. The trainees should be encouraged to ask some questions. You know, no question is a dumb question. I'm sure we've all heard that. So make sure that they're asking questions. And the trainer should also ask questions to ensure they are understanding the material that they're receiving. So it's two-way street on the communication there. So the only way to become a proficient forklift operator is to actually drive the vehicle. The practical portion of the training is very critical to having safe operators. The part of the training can start with, say, a tour of the truck's features and controls, which is typically where I start with it, or an inspection form is a good place to start, or do simple demonstrations to show the trainees how to conduct a safety inspection of the truck, how to start it, how the controls function, just basic operations. After the introduction, let them have some hands-on practice. Use the same demonstration and hands-on practice approach as the training progresses though. So gradually introduce some skills. For example, have the trainees learn how to maneuver the truck in a workplace before they handle loads as an example. Or, and then when they're ready, have them evaluate a load's weight and stability and then approach and pick up a load, then gradually operate the, for, the loaded forklift and then deposit a load. So gradually build up their skills and experience slowly during the demonstration part, the practical instruction part. Mark, do you mind sharing some information about the training program content for us? Absolutely. All right, so aside from requirements for how to do the training, OSHA gives us a detailed list of topics to cover during the training. Two main categories, you can see them up on that slide, truck-related and workplace-related topics. Remember, OSHA does require you to include information on the forklift standard itself as part of the training uh, program. Now, this can be easy to overlook, but the way that I think it should be done, and a lot of people do it this way, is cover it in the classroom portions that Cindy talked about, because, you know, you, you can actually pull up a bit of the regs, maybe um, on the computer, whatever, and show them exactly how OSHA goes around, gets around um, putting these requirements out in writing. It, it's, it's a pretty good regulation as far as OSHA regs go in 1910-178. I actually kind of like it. It's, it's written pretty well. Now, as we go over the truck and workplace related topics, keep in mind if a topic doesn't apply to your, your operations or your workplace, you certainly don't have to waste time training on it. Uh, an example I like to use is you know, if you don't have any ramps or you don't have any hazardous classified locations in your facility, you certainly don't want to train on that because it doesn't apply. And the thing that I like to stress here is the way the standards written, you know, you really want to have something to back up your decision to skip a topic just in case an OSHA inspector asks about it. You could for example, have a written statement that a survey of the workplace hazards has found there are no ramps or slopes in your facility there, then you wouldn't have to train on it. But then go ahead, uh, sign that statement, date it, file it just in case. And of course, if you build an addition or you do remodeling, um, you're gonna wanna update that survey so you can keep that all that information current. 
All right, effective safety training programs not only help you comply with OSHA requirements, they help also help reduce accidents and injuries, lower workers' comp costs, improve employee engagement and morale, and not only that, but they preserve your company's reputation in the community. Whatever your company's needs, JJ Keller Training can help with 24-7 access to hundreds of online courses and streaming video, uh, which are covering multiple industries. So that's a really a good thing because no matter really what industry you are, you can use our training products. With our user-friendly options, training's never been easier. If you'd like more information about JJ Keller Training, use the poll on your screen to select your interest. Each JJ Keller training program is carefully built by our experienced adult learning specialist and reviewed by our subject matter experts to be engaging, effective, and of course, up to date. And since JJ Keller's training is sponsoring today's event, anyone interested in learning more about our training solutions is going to receive that forklift white paper free of charge. Um, and again, We've got some questions coming in here that we're going to maybe, Cindy, if you want to grab one or whatever. Absolutely. Um, I sure will. And I, I, that white paper sounds exciting. I do love free stuff. So that's kind of nice. Um, we have one question here that um, are operators required to be trained on each manufacturer of model fork truck or PIT, even though it's the same PIT type. So for example, for a stand up reach truck, but facility has three different manufacturers, um, do they require to be trained on each one? So technically speaking, employees must be trained separately for each type of forklift they are using. However, that being said, they don't need to complete separate training for the same type of forklift made by a different manufacturer. Now, when I say that though, make sure that if there are unique controls or anything that's, that's different in general, you, you'll want to have them trained on the particular, you know, the little intricate differences between those. Um, but I typically as a safety manager on um, have always asked my operators to at least demonstrate safe operation on each of those just to make sure. So technical full flown training, no, but um, doing a, a demonstration, I would highly recommend. Uh, let's see here. I think we have another one. You want me to go ahead with another one? Sure. All right. So we had a question about whether spinner knobs are allowed on forklift steering wheels. So I, I like this question because I've still seen some in action, believe it or not, but the OSHA powered industrial truck regulation for the general industry doesn't specifically address steering knobs. However, there is an industry standard that federal OSHA has often rest, uh, referenced, which is ANSI B56.1, which Mark talked about earlier. Um, this provides some fairly detailed information on steering knobs in short, ANSI standard does allow for steering knobs if certain criteria are met, and in some cases, steering knobs may even be necessary. For example, maybe um, if steering isn't has to be accomplished with one hand, um, it could be also um, the operating instruction should also be consulted in that situation. But the construction standard talks a little bit about dirt and ground moving equipment. So your heavy equipment knob, what the reg says is that the steering or spearing, uh, spinner knobs shall not be attached to the steering wheel unless the steering mechanism is of a type that prevents road reactions from causing the steering hand wheel to spin. So there are the differences between OSHA, um, general industry and construction, but I will say they're sometimes referred to as suicide knobs. So I'm just gonna throw that out there. So if there aren't going to improve operating performance, then you may just want to consider not having those on there. So with that, I'll throw it back to you, Mark. Thank you. Thanks for answering those. You bet. Keep, keep sending these things in. I know there's a lot of people out there. We, we've gotten some, but we, we take time at the end with our moderator asking questions. So keep, keep them coming in. All right, so let's move on to truck-related topics. Um, they're shown on the next two slides. We're not going to cover each of them, but we wanted to list them out for you. Much of this information that we're going to show here, that's going to be found in the truck's operating manual. And of course, OSHA does expect operators to have training on the information in that manual. Um, so it's a, it's a really a good thing. Now, when you take a close look at these topics, they make a lot of sense. So 
for example, providing instruction on the differences between a forklift and a car, an automobile, or a truck that uh, they drive, you know, your trainees drive, that's a good idea because if anybody's operated a forklift, it runs completely different than a on-the-road vehicle. Uh, for new forklift operators, I found they uh, kind of think that the forklift's going to handle like a car, and they're pretty shocked when it doesn't. So let's see here. I skipped ahead. I apologize. Here's the rest of that list. You know, we're going to train on capacity, very important stability. We're going to talk about the uh, stability triangle. We're going to train on the operator's manual. We get questions uh, from people saying, hey, do we have to uh, let employees see the operating manual? Yes, if they ask. It doesn't have to be kept on the vehicle, on the forklift, and the standard doesn't specifically require you provide employee access to the manual, but I don't see why you wouldn't want to. Uh, and it does have a lot of sense attached to it if you make that manual available to your forklift operators. A lot of these can be found online. So, you know, if you can't find the manual or it's in, you can always look this stuff up online. Okay, so one other thing, if you're doing in-house truck maintenance or repairs, your mechanics are definitely going to need to see that manual because there's going to be things that they're going to want to look at. A lot of these truck-related topics, they lend themselves to the practical part of the program, and it's easier to demonstrate how the controls work than talk about them during a lecture. But I find it's better to in introduce these topics during classroom instructions where people can ask questions. Maybe you have some photos of them that you took that you can put up before they get out to the practical. That's going to save some time. And I think it alleviates a little anxiety when they have the ideas of how these things operate and work before they get out there on the floor. Consider using, you know, like photos uh, to give them that solid foundation before they work with the truck. All right, now, this slide is important because it shows the workplace related topics. What you need to keep in mind here is this, all this stuff really is, is specific, unique to your facility. It's not gonna be in somebody else's training videos or training product. Maybe you have a training video that you took and used, which would be awesome to show, but most people don't. They're, you know, these training videos are valuable additions to your training program. Employees learn a lot from them, but uh, before you use training uh, materials, add the workplace specific information your operators have to have to operate safely in your facility. Now, keep in mind the trainees must successfully complete the formal and practical instructions. We get questions, hey, how do we know they did that? Well, the way to determine, quote, success, that's up to you. Often for the classroom portion, you could give a written test, maybe you quiz them verbally, uh, or somehow evaluate their knowledge. And then for the practical training, it seems pretty obvious that you got to be able to watch these operators running the equipment, performing all the operations that they're going to be using on the job. So um, I think that's a pretty good way to approach this. This uh, initial training makes a lot of sense. This slide leads us into the discussion on refresher training. Cindy's going to talk about that and also duplicate training. We get questions for training about uh, newly hired operators who have experience. And as Cindy will discuss, you can do some acceptance, acceptance of previous training, but generally, as I just mentioned here, new hires that have never been in your facility, they're going to need training on this workplace specific related topics because they've never ran in your facility. Cindy? Thanks, Mark. Yeah, exactly like you said, let's go a little bit through refresher training and some evaluation stuff. So an evaluation of the operator's performance in the workplace, it really needs to be conducted at the time of initial training. So capture them while you have them new and fresh. 
This evaluation is required to determine the effectiveness of any refresher training. So, and an evaluation must be conducted at least every three years. So, so don't forget the timing on that one. This means that at least once every three years, every operator must be observed while they operate the forklift in the workplace under actual workplace conditions. So during the evaluation, the operator needs to be able to answer pertinent questions. They need to be able to demonstrate that they have the knowledge to operate the forklift safely. So a key point to note here though, is the evaluation must also be more than just a written or verbal test. The employer must actually observe the operator in action performing all typical job tasks. So we, we get that question quite a bit because they're, they're, people aren't really sure what, what exactly and Details the evaluation, but it does require observing somebody to drive. So that's the demonstration portion of the initial training. Um, and going back to where we started, the evaluation must be conducted by someone who has the knowledge, training, and experience to evaluate the truck operator's competence. So what about refresher training? Many people ask if forklift training is required annually. Well, Surprisingly, it's not. So instead, OSHA requires refresher training to be conducted whenever any situations listed up here on the slide arise um, in the workplace. So if there's an operator has been observed operating the vehicle in an unsafe manner, for example, or if there's an accident or a near miss, or like I like to call them a near hit, um, then you'd want to do refresher training. If there are safety issues that might come about during the performance evaluation, you'll want to do a refresher training to cover those types of things. The operator is assigned to drive a different type of forklift, for example. So meaning maybe they went from a sit down rider and then they've switched over to a stand up truck or an order picker or something like that. Or the condition in the workplace changes in a manner that could affect safe operation of the truck. So you may have added either some, maybe there's a new dock somewhere or um, changes in your exit paths or your, um, your walkways for people. You'll want to definitely do refresher training for people on those types of things. So you only have to conduct refresher training when one of these situations occurs, essentially a change in the workplace. So there's no set schedule for it, but as we noted on the prior slide, an evaluation is required once every three years as we talked about, but that's a little bit different than training as we've discussed. So as we mentioned before, OSHA does give you a break when an operator has received training in the past. Um, you don't have to duplicate training in topics that were covered in previous training. So this applies to new hires as well as refresher training but there are almost always truck specific or workplace specific issues that the employee will need training on. So for example, let's say an employee turned sharply while driving too fast and the load fell from the forks. This incident is obviously something that would call for refresher training. And even though the operator had previous training on steering stability and load handling, a review of those topics is required. But OSHA does not expect you to cover something unrelated to that particular incident, say like battery charging or um, any other topic that didn't apply for work, workload and travel. So in addition, regardless of the, train, the driver's training background, OSHA does require that each employer evaluate each operator prior to allowing them to drive in the workplace. So you get somebody new that comes on, they say, I worked over at Home Depot, I have truck lift um, experience, you've observed them driving. Um, that's, that's, exactly, that's perfectly fine. You don't have to cover, cover anything additional and new um, as long as you've evaluated them prior to allowing them to drive at your workplace. So another common question we get from customers is whether or not OSHA requires operators be given a wallet card or a license. And I see that this has come up a few times in our Q&A that we haven't quite gotten to yet. So we'll just kind of cover that now. Federal OSHA does not require the employer to issue forklift operator license or wallet cards, although many employers choose to do that. Now, that being said, there are some states like Michigan, for example, where I'm at, that do require a wallet card. So be sure you check your local state um, regulations to verify which one would apply for you. So OSHA actually only requires that the employer certify the training has been done. This simply means placing a record on file that the training and evaluation was completed. And, and that documentation should include the operator's name, the date of the training, the date of the evaluation, and the names of the persons who perform the training and the evaluation if those are separate people. So there is no federal OSHA requirement to give the operator any documentation, but it can certainly be company policy because some people like to use that to help tracking who's certified on what equipment. It's just kind of easier to go up to somebody and say, hey, can I see your verification card? So that's why a lot of employees, even though it may not be required in their state, choose to do so. 
So Mark, how about we chat a little bit about forklift inspections? Absolutely. All right, let's see. I want to get on the right slide here. All right. So that wraps up the section on training. Let's shift gears, talk about inspecting forklifts. Again, we get a lot of questions on this. In this section, we're going to answer these questions on the slide. What are the OSHA requirements? What does the inspection consist of? And when do you know if a issue warrants taking the equipment out of service for safety? And last two inspections actually have to be documented. Very, very interesting from an OSHA standpoint. All right, so OSHA requires uh, inspecting forklifts. Uh, that is found at point 178.27. OSHA requires the equipment be inspected daily prior to use or after each shift if used around the clock. Now, I, I've always thought that that was really interesting. Um, interesting but vague so we're gonna we're gonna cover that in a bit of detail here okay how do you inspect the equipment there's a couple different ways we're going to talk about um pre-conduct uh, conducting a pre-start visual check with the key off and then the operator should perform an operational check keep in mind though each manufacturer is going to have recommendations on this so each, well, why, why is that? Well, each truck has specific features and unique inspection needs. So that's why you need to look at the operating manual, the operations manual for your individual forklifts. And often there's more than one type in facility. So, all right, here is the, uh, we put this up here because these are just general to most all forklifts. They don't come from an OSHA standard. They're based on recommendations in OSHA's forklift e-tool. If you've never seen that, that's worthwhile taking a look at it. What are you going to want to check here? Let's, let's start with fluid levels. We're going to look for leaks, cracks, defects, pretty much all parts of the forklift that you can check with the engine off. Uh, give a close scrutiny to things like tires. Uh, the forks, are they chipped? Are they bent? Uh, are there cracks in them? And then really anything else that could jeopardize safety for your workers. Note these are general items for most forklifts, as I said. There's gonna be additional items for electric powered uh, forklifts and LP gas powered forklifts. And what, why is that? Well, these types are gonna require PPE for the inspection. Uh, why? Well, the electric forklifts have a battery that's got electrolyte that could expose employees to that. And then the LP gas exposure, uh, we're talking freeze burn from, from that. Operational check. This is done after the first inspection. Uh, we're gonna start this inspection with the engine running. So this inspection typically involves what you're going to see on the slide. Uh, and again, aside from these items we're talking about, check the manufacturer's recommendations, because as I mentioned, you got to look at the manual because each truck could have unique features and have unique inspection needs. All right, we're already getting some questions on this uh, specific slide. We talked a lot about this. Uh, mainly how to conduct the inspection, but we get asked about documenting the inspections and keeping those records for a specified period of time. When I first got into safety and found out about this, I was pretty, pretty shocked. Uh, OSHA does not actually require the daily forklift inspections be documented or even written. And that, of course, means that if it, they don't require that, they don't require a specific record retention time if you do decide to document those uh, inspections. Now, obviously, even though not required using an inspection checklist, a written one, or let's say you have it on an iPad, uh, it's a good idea for two reasons. Number one, uh, that ensures, because somebody that's doing this inspection is gonna initial that or sign their name and date it, and they're gonna check some boxes, right? that ensures that they actually did look at these things or it should ensure that they did look at these things. And not only that, it provides evidence to 
an OSHA compliance officer that the vehicles are being inspected as required. Because let's just say you have a scenario that OSHA comes in and you know they're they're looking around your facility and they you know hey where are your forklift uh, inspection checklists? Do you have them? Oh no, we don't. Um, our employees just do it you know on their own and you know they do a good job. Well, I have a feeling the inspector is going to say, oh yeah do you have an operator I can talk to? And they're going to talk to that operator and say, hey, do you really do these and do you do them every day? And so just be safe and have some kind of an inspection checklist. And with that, I'm gonna turn it over to Cindy. Thanks, Mark. Now we're gonna move on to attachments and modifications. So we'll answer questions about getting manufacturer's approval, which is a very, very common question for folks, um, whether or not it's necessary. What to do if the manufacturer reject, rejects your request for an addition or a modification to a forklift. And we'll also talk about personal personnel platforms, another topic that we get quite a few questions on. So here's one that trips up a lot of people. OSHA requires prior manufacturer written approval for additions or modifications affecting capacity and safe operation. I think we're gonna advance the slide here real quick. How's that? Oh, that's perfect, thank you. OSHA has interpreted this very liberally um, to cover everything from warning lights to personal platforms. So if you plan on adding to or modifying, modifying your, your forklifts or powered industrial trucks, you must get the manufacturer's prior written approval and then change the capacity plates and operating instructions accordingly. So, but what do you do if the manufacturer either says no or simply doesn't reply to your request? So not an uncommon situation, believe it or not, and OSHA does address it. So what OSHA has to say in, a, in an April 1997 letter of interpretation, um, the employer, if the employer seeks written approval from the manufacturer for any modifications or additions to a forklift and they say no or they don't respond for whatever reason, then OSHA will accept a written approval of the modification or addition from a qualified registered professional engineer, or you might hear people refer that as a PE. So this person must perform a safety analysis and address any safety and or structural issues that are contained in the manufacturer's negative response if you received a response prior to um, granting any approval. If you didn't get a response, then they would just note that um, stuff based on what they have observed in their analysis. So then make sure that the forkl forklift's capacity and data plates are changed accordingly. So that's a key thing there. A lot of people get um, some approval, but then they forget to go back and change the plates accordingly. So make sure you don't get caught up in that trap. And speaking of attachments, OSHA has said that personnel platforms are considered attachments and require that employers obtain the manufacturer's prior written approval before adding them. So that's the first thing to consider, whether or not the manufacturer even will allow the platforms to be used. And here, of course, we're talking about adding a personnel platform to equipment like uh, sit-down forklift trucks, as an example. We're not talking about equipment designed to lift personnel like order, um, for example, order pickers. Um, but once you've determined that it's okay with the manufacturer, then you have to deal with the safety issues of using a personnel platform with a forklift. And there are several. So fall hazards are obviously one of the major concerns. So workers being lifted must be protected either by guardrails or a personal fall arrest system. So some form of fall protection. In addition, the platform itself must be secured. So it, otherwise it can't tip over or slide off. In addition, the operator needs to remain at the controls and exercise caution in operation. So the OSHA regulation doesn't really get into the details of safe operation when using personnel platforms with forklifts, but they have referenced the industry standard known as, um, which we've talked about already, the ANSI B56.1. So the industry standard provides quite a bit of guidance on fall protection, securing personnel platforms, and procedures for elevating personnel. So just a few things to keep um, track of there. The B56.1 standard is copyright. Um, so we're not you know, allowed to print that out or, or have it here, but you can download it for free through the ITSDF website shown on the slide right now um, at the bottom there. And elevating personnel is addressed um, in, if you want to jot this down, section 4.17. So Mark, I'm going to toss it back to you for a little bit. All right, 
So if I can get us on the right uh, slide here, uh, we will talk about uh, these three items here that come up quite a bit. And one thing about that website that we had, I, I went to that a couple days ago and got, got signed up. And yeah, it's really a nice, nice way to see that stuff for free. All right, couple, couple of unorthodox uses of forklifts we're gonna talk about, and then the more common speed limit, which is really interesting, and then pedestrian safety operating on ramps, inclines. Cindy's gonna talk about that. All right, split forking and bulldozing. Um, they're pretty rare, but I, I've heard of them being used. So what is this? Okay, so it's lifting two pallets using one fork for each, or in the case of bulldozing, actually pushing a load on the floor while there's a load on the forks. Now, I'm not surprised that OSHA says these two practices could be dangerous. Uh, and they say the forklifts are probably not designed to lift and move loads and split forking and bulldozing. So you want to check the uh, manual, the, the manufacturer's manual, because I'm pretty sure it's going to have uh, prohibitions against that. But again, you never know. Maybe you bought your forklift specifically to do that. And OSHA also requires loads to be stable uh, and safely arranged. That's probably not going to happen if you're doing two of these, these two things. Look at that letter of interpretation for additional information. All right, next, the speed limit. Now, we, we get questions on this all the time. I'm not surprised if we haven't gotten any. I haven't had a chance to look too close at the questions. But OSHA doesn't have specific speed limits set for operation of PITs, though they kind of generally address it in 1910.178 and one. Uh, they talk about authorized plant speed limits. So in your facilities, I'm sure that you, you know, laid down the rules about how fast these things can run, especially if they're inside the facility, uh, as opposed to running outside in a yard where there is no pedestrians. Uh, OSHA is going to determine uh, the safe speed that you should be operating at. If there's issues, you know, if you have an accident, they're going to take uh, certain conditions into uh, to factor into consideration. They're listed on the screen. Now, while they're talking about speed limits, um, it's going to depend on your facility. For assistance in determining these safe Travel speeds, OSHA says that an employer could look to consensus standards such as ANSI B56.1, which we've mentioned. Now, I want to talk about this last bullet because the latest and greatest B56.1 changed that. They took it out. In 2020, they came up with a set of tables that I looked at the other day to talk about safe stopping distance. And it's pretty complicated, but they apparently thought that that formula that they used for years was no longer valid. So um, there's a couple different things you can look uh, in the operator's manual that'll talk about a maximum speed. Obviously you're not gonna run at that, but this stopping distance is gonna depend on your facility. And I think Cindy's gonna finish up this thing, but we're gonna take some questions. I actually would like to talk a little bit about ramps and inclines. So what about operating on these in these situations? Uh, this is another topic, again, that we get a lot of questions about. OSHA actually has an e-tool on forklift safety on their site. And this is where the detailed information on operating on ramps and incline, where, where we've gathered that information. And you can also check for a little bit more detail. But with a typical sit-down forklift, you'll always point the load up the incline when you're carrying a load, regardless of your direction of, of travel. So in other words, going up the incline, operators will drive forward point the forks upgrade and use a spotter if the load um, is blocking their view. When going down the incline, the operator will drive in reverse, turning their head and facing downgrade with the forks pointed upgrade. So that's when there's a load on the forks. Now, there is a calculation in the forklift regulation which says, and I'm just, forgive me again for quoting, but when ascending or descending grades in excess of 10%, 
loaded trucks shall be driven with the load upgrade. So keep in mind when you um, when you do your operating trading, since the trainees may not know the grade is more or less than 10 percent to um, and to complicate things further forklift manufacturers such as Toyota define the inclines as 10 percent or greater depending on the rise over run. So that can get very confusing. So just kind of share this with them during your training so they better understand your facility, your inclines and how to operate on those safely. On the other hand, when you're traveling without a load, the fork should point downgrade regardless of the direction of travel. So operators will drive in reverse going up the incline and drive forward going down the incline. So that's for a standard forklift. It's a little bit different when you're talking about pallet jacks. In those cases, the fork should be pointed downgrade regardless of the direction of travel um, and regardless of whether or not there's a load. So that one's a, a way more consistent. So we've covered quite a bit of, a bit of topics today. Hopefully we haven't gone too fast, um, gotten a little bit too, in the, too much into the weeds for you, but just wanna recap a little bit. Um, essentially for this standard, if it moves material other than earth and it's powered, then there's a good chance that it falls under regulation 1910-178. And under 178, training is a major issue. So there's a lot to it. We've talked about that, which includes an evaluation, practical training, and a certification. There are also very strict requirements for inspections and maintenance that Mark talked about. So hopefully you came away with some takeaways there, including pre-operational and operation inspection items. In addition, we talked about the importance of getting manufacturer's approval before making any modifications or additions to your forklifts or PITs. This can't be stated enough that it, if it affects the safe operation or capacity or stability or anything like that with the forklift, then the manufacturer has to sign off on it or else you have to go through a registered PE that we talked about. So we also talked a little bit about a host of operating considerations, including speed limits, operating on inclines, et cetera. Again, these are the most common questions that we've received over the years. So that's why we're sharing these specifically with you. So hopefully we did answer quite a few of your questions, but I do see that we have some more questions coming in from our participants. So we'd like to take a few of those right now. So um, while we're doing that though, I did want to talk a little bit about our, we're gonna do another poll here. So um, before we do our Q&A session, I'd like to once again mention the sponsor of today's webcast is JJ Keller Training. So whatever your company needs, JJ Keller Training can help you with 24 access to hundreds of online courses and stream, streaming video training content across multiple industries. So with that being said, Mark, did you wanna start off with a question? Um, are we going to turn this back to our moderator to ask the questions? Oh, yes. yeah. No, no, I'll, uh, and I'll, I'll be brief. No, first want to thank you and, and say excellent and great job to both of you. And we thank you for sharing your insights and expertise. Before diving into the question, just briefly want to let everyone know about the evaluation survey that we're asking you to complete. The survey will open in a different screen after this webinar. And as always, we appreciate your input because it helps us improve our future webcasts. So without further ado, um, let's, let's get to those questions. Um, first. Uh, how old do you have to be to operate a forklift? Is that one for me, Kevin? It, sure, yes. <laughs> you have to be at least 18. Okay, thank you. You bet. Um, this next one I think was marked for Mark. Um, do, you need to do you need to do a documented evaluation form for operators or just sign off that they were evaluated? This is a really interesting question because we got this from one of our sales reps. And as long as you have the, the name of the operator, the trainers and the date that they were evaluated, that's all you need. But sometimes there's a really interesting form that details a lot of different aspects of the evaluation. Uh, it, it's up to you how you determine that, but it's gotta be in writing. And it specifically has to say at the top, forklift operator evaluation certification form, you know, it's got to be something clear that if an ocean inspector comes in, you can show them that and they know exactly what they're looking at. Well, thank you. Uh, for Cindy, are there different training requirements for people who work in the agricultural industry opposed to general industry or construction? 
You know, the main details for forklift or pit training is pretty much the same. The differences are going to come in with the equipment or let's say the manufacturer approved attachments and things that are often used for agriculture that might not be used elsewhere. So if you have uniqueness like that, those areas do need to be um, trained specifically towards. But for the most part, the the training is generally along the same lines. Thank you. Uh, For Mark, why is it important to inspect the decals and nameplates? The reason you want to do this is, is because those have to be perfectly legible, all right? Because there's going to be some information on capacity, that type of thing, what attachments can be used. So if somehow they got rubbed off or, you know, were damaged or scratched through the years, which I have seen, um, you're going to have a problem because when OSHA comes in or if there's an accident because you didn't follow those, uh, you're going to have issues and they're going to call you out on that. So they have to be inspected. And if they're not legible, you have to replace them. Well, great. Uh, for Cindy, does OSHA say that you need a fire extinguisher on the uh, power industrial truck? What a great question, because it is a popular question. And surprisingly, the answer is no, unless the forklift or pit was designed and manufactured to carry one. Now, if it is on there and manufactured with one, then they, the fire extinguishers would fall under 1910-157E that requires them to be visually inspected monthly along with all the other fire extinguishers. On that same vein, Cindy, do you need an instruction manual on the forklift? You know, that's another one. You don't actually have to have it, but um, to have it readily available and to be used during training, um, it's a great source for training, but it needs, it should be available, but it's not required to be kept on the forklift. It's not like a crane. Okay. This one's from Mark and it asks, how long does a business need to keep completed in a, in a completed equipment pre-checklist on the file? Again, that's up to you. If you have 20 forklifts and you have a paper uh, documentation for each day and you save these things, eventually you're going to have boxes of them. So I know a company that keeps them for 45 days and then they throw them out and that's in their company policies. What this does is when OSHA comes in, they can say, yeah, we save them for 45 days for each forklift and then we toss them out. And here's what we have for this forklift. So it shows that you've been doing it and uh, again, it's not even required, but it's a best practice. And of course, you should be doing that. Cindy, what typically is the student to teacher ratio for forklift training? You know, OSHA doesn't really say how many you should do. It's really what's comfortable as far as the instructor with um, the, the individual participant needs. So if you have people that are either really new, um, really young, you may want to have a lower um, teacher or trainer participant ratio. Or if there are, there's difficulty hearing because of the environment that you're in, you'll probably want to have fewer people. So it really depends on the circumstance, but OSHA doesn't really dictate a, a, a specific ratio. For Mark, do employees need to be recertified if they move from one state to another within the same company? You need to make sure that you do the site-specific training uh, because the other facility could be different. Yes, they receive training. Is it the same type of equipment? Blah blah blah. You want to be on the safe site. Um, if they're operating in a new facility using the same type of equipment, I would definitely certify them again because they're operating in a different facility and OSHA may prefer that anyway. So always on the safe side. All right. Um, For Cindy, if an employee should receive a DUI or have a suspended license, is there any kind of OSHA regulation that would impact their ability to operate a forklift? You know, I've actually run into this before, and technically speaking, no, because the the state ID and what is done with the, the DUI or, or the license itself is completely different than an operator's license. So unless your company specifically requires that you have a license in order to drive a forklift, um, then that is not dictated. But obviously, you know, you'd want to probably keep an eye on the situation and ensure that that person can still safely operate the vehicle in in the workplace. 
Well, no, we are, we're winding down today. And as you indicate, we covered quite a bit of ground, but as we do so, any closing thoughts from, from either of you? All I want to say is thank you for joining us. Obviously, this is a very important topic. Uh, and the more you can learn about it, the better. Cindy, what do you think? I think this has been a, a wonderful opportunity to share some information. We've had extremely exciting and, and great questions that came through. So it was a pleasure to have an opportunity to, to talk through some of those. And um, we hope that um, people will tune in to other webcasts that we can offer on forklift safety. Well, no, again, we, we thank you both. And unfortunately, we've run out of time. So we're sorry that we didn't get to everyone's questions. But as we indicated, um, each of the unanswered questions will be forwarded along today to our speakers. Once again, we hope you take the time to fill out that forthcoming evaluation survey and give us your feedback. With that, we end today's Safety and Health Magazine webcast. We'd like to thank Mark Stromey, Cindy Pauley, everyone at JJ Keller, and all of you who listened in. Thanks and have a great day.